invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 20 for the next couple of weeks. This, this week and next week we're going to take a brief pause from our series in Daniel to prepare our hearts for something very eventful, something for which we prayed and continue to pray, uh, an installation of one of our own to serve as a church officer next Lord's Day. And so in, in preparation for that, I want to take uh, these next two Lord's Days to address matters related to serving as an officer of Christ within his church for all, for all of our good. Uh, this is not simply uh, for Henry's good. This is for the good of all of us. Uh, for all who are already officers, for those of you who we pray are praying for us daily, lifting us up before the throne of grace. So these sermons are for all of us together as God's people. So the text, once again, Matthew chapter 20, uh, verses 17 through 28. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on thy left in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, 
but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. True greatness is not measured by one's ability to control people, but rather by one's ability to serve people. Raw power does not qualify one to rule, whether it's in the state, the church, or the family. The most qualified leaders are those who have learned that the serious responsibility to lead, whether it's in the family or in the church, is not an excuse to control people. It's not an excuse to push people around. It's not an excuse to make oneself appear important in the eyes of others. It's not an excuse to promote one's own agenda. Those wrong reasons for ruling or being a church officer are all too often that which is common in those who have been corrupted by a hunger and by a thirst for power. However, to find leaders in the church who understand that the greatest duty of a church officer is to be, first and foremost, a servant of Jesus Christ. And then second, to be a servant of the people whom Christ has given unto us. Rather than filling us with pride, the duty of caring for Christ's sheep ought to empty us of pride because we realize we can't do it. We can't care for Christ's sheep. We are fallible, we are weak, we are frail, we stumble, we fall. And so it ought to humble us that, that we have been given that great responsibility to care for the sheep of Jesus Christ. It ought to work within us that constant desire, Lord, give us wisdom. Give us understanding. Well, the Lord Jesus teaches us from our text here before us today that the greatest leader is the greatest servant. And the main points from our text are these. First of all, the willingness of Christ to serve through suffering. In Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19. The second main point, the desire of the disciples to be served through ruling. In Matthew 20, verses 20 through 24. And the third main point, true greatness lies not in ruling, but in serving. In Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. 
Our first main point then, the willingness of Christ to serve through suffering. In Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19. Lord Jesus is making here his last journey to Jerusalem, knowing full well what he is about to suffer in the week that lies ahead of him. As Jesus and his disciples travel the road, he pulls his disciples aside and gives them a preview of what is about to transpire in Jerusalem by way of his suffering, by way of his resurrection. This was not the first time that Jesus had shared with them these very sobering truths that he was going to suffer, he was going to die, he was going to be raised the third day. This is actually the third time that is recorded in scripture that Jesus had informed them and and given them this preview of what was to come. In Matthew 16, 21, we read, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then in the next chapter, Matthew 17, verses 22 through 23, we read, And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. And then, so chapter 16, chapter 17, and now in chapter 20, we find that the Lord has been preparing his disciples for that which is to come. And still the disciples did not clearly understand what was about to take place. They did not understand what he meant by what he was saying. Peter became upset on one of those occasions and said, Lord, let it not be. Uh, It says on another occasion that they were sorry for what he had said, but they truly didn't understand. In Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34, which is a parallel passage to this one we're looking at today. It says, Then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on, and they shall scourge him and put him to death, And the third day he shall rise again. Now notice this uh, last sentence. And they understood none of these things. And the saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. So they didn't understand even though he had said to them on these three occasions. that It did not get through. It was kept from them uh, by way of fully understanding what Jesus said. No doubt they could understand the words, but they could not put together how this all fits in with their theology. What were they expecting? They were not expecting 
Jesus to come to suffer and to die. They were expecting Jesus, the Messiah, who would reign as king. And that's why we get into this little discussion later on about uh, uh, from the mother of James and John. You know, when you come in your kingdom, you know, my request is that uh, one son sit on your left hand and one, the other son sit on your right hand. That's what they were all anticipating. That's what they were looking toward. They could not see Jesus, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. All they could see was that glorious messianic king coming in great power and establishing his rule over the nations, which he would accomplish, which he would do. But again, that's what they were expecting then. Dear ones, it's not natural, I think, for us to be serving when we are suffering through afflictions. Uh, it's supernatural to have the grace to serve while we are suffering. And yet Jesus, Jesus is the example for us all because he served in his suffering. He served and lowered himself more than anyone has ever lowered himself in order to serve, to rescue, to save we who did not deserve to be rescued and saved. The servant heart of Jesus was made manifest even when he was blindfolded and punched in the face, when he was spat upon, when a crown of thorns was placed upon his head and then with a rod driven down into his skull when he was unjustly condemned for crimes that he did not commit, and when he hung there suffocating upon the cross, trying to breathe, trying to gasp for breath, but dying as a result of a suffocating torment and anguish. All the time, through it all, he was serving his beloved bride. It is very human when affliction comes our way to feed upon the poison of self-pity, feel sorry for ourselves, and to expect and to demand that others serve us because we're sick. However, it is, dear ones, divine it is divine to fill our thoughts and prayers with the desire to serve Jesus and to serve others even in the midst of our suffering and when things are not going well for us. To be able to serve others through our prayers for others, through our words of encouragement to others, through our deeds. We can even serve the Lord and serve others on our deathbed when we're not consumed with ourselves but we're consumed with Jesus Christ and with those that we're leaving behind to serve them with our final breath. It is human to drink the dregs of resentment and bitterness toward God and others when we feel lousy. 
but it's divine and it's supernatural to submit in love to the holy and most wise purposes of our gracious God who is able to make us servants even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Thus, dear ones, thus did our Savior serve in his suffering. Even as he warned his disciples, even as he told them in advance what was going to happen, he could not simply speak those words without emotion, without feeling, knowing what he was going to go through. And yet, he was serving, even in the midst of that suffering. God grant us the servant heart of Jesus Christ. The second main point, the desire of the disciples to be served through ruling. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 24, then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on thy left in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of? And to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to him, them for whom it is prepared of my father. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. So somewhere along the way to Jerusalem, the mother of James and John, who was apparently traveling with Jesus and the disciples, there was very often, it wasn't just Jesus and the the, the 12 disciples, but uh, very often there were women who accompanied them, who ministered, who brought uh, food uh, along with them, who prepared meals for them as they traveled from place to place. And in this particular instance, uh, we find the mother of James and John uh, apparently accompanying them as, they, as Jesus makes that last journey to Jerusalem. And she poses a question to the Lord Jesus in verses 20 and 21. And uh, she says, Grant that these my two sons may sit the one on thy right hand and the other on thy left in thy kingdom. <clears throat> now it would seem here that James and John were the real culprits, uh, were the real instigators behind this particular question and not the mother. Um, they had perhaps convinced their mother to bring the question to Jesus on their behalf. In Mark 10.35, the parallel passage, it actually says, 
And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. So Mark just, the Gospel of Mark just mentions uh, James and John. Matthew mentions their mother being the one who is kind of put forward to ask the question on their behalf. But it seems nevertheless that it was really James and John that were behind this uh, as, we, as we look at the rest of the text here. Consider that Christ's response is directed uh, to the two disciples rather than to their mother. For example, we read in uh, verse 22, But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. That's plural. You know, he's saying to, to the James and John, you don't know what you're asking. Uh, it's not uh, thou, you know, in the singular, you know, uh, dear mother of James and John, uh, you in the singular don't know, but you in the plural don't know what you're asking. Also consider that the other ten disciples were not indignant with the mother, uh, but they were indignant with their fellow disciples, James and John, uh, in verse 24. Perhaps James and John thought that uh, Christ, the Lord Jesus, might be more willing uh, to grant them their request if it was uh, the mom uh, that brought the request rather than James and John that did so. Is that not perhaps uh, also the motivation in praying to Mary? Uh, that uh, Mary uh, is very likely to be able to get the ear of her son Jesus and those who do so um, are basically following a similar pattern. Uh, it's certainly um, unbiblical and scriptural. Uh, we're only to pray to God. We're not to pray to any uh, angel or any human being even if they're perfected in, in glory. We're not to pray to them. But it would seem like perhaps uh, that there's somewhat of a similar motivation in doing so. What did they want Jesus to do for them? They wanted him to grant that they might sit upon thrones in the most honored and privileged positions near to Jesus Christ. When he set up, they believed, his political kingdom. They wanted to be nearest to him by way of thrones, ruling on the right hand and on the left hand of the Lord Jesus. They wanted to have those places of honor to be served, not to serve. Now Jesus had promised uh, in Matthew 19:28 that when he shall set up the throne of his glory, the disciples would sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the, apparently the disciples believed, as I've noted, that Jesus was going to be soon crowned king as he goes to Jerusalem, uh, a political king of Israel, in which he would reign upon the throne of David from Jerusalem. Thus James and John wanted to be above the rest of the disciples uh, in honor 
and in dignity. Now you will recall that the disciples on a previous occasion had disputed over this very question, who shall be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And back in Mark 9, uh, verses 33 through 34, and there Jesus had taught them in Mark 9.35, he had taught them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. The greatest is the greatest servant. The greatest of all is the greatest servant. Although the disciples may not have coveted lands, uh, may not have coveted money and treasures, earthly possessions like the rich young ruler, they were, however, coveting honor. They were coveting uh, dignity and prestige. They were, they were coveting uh, rule and government at Christ's right hand and left hand. It would appear from the reading of this that it was not exactly at the top of their list to be the servant of all, but to be the ruler of all. They were not interested in being a servant, but rather in being a prince. Kind of like uh, what we read of in 3 John, verse 9, concerning apparently an elder, a minister by the name of Diotrephes, and there... John, interestingly, whose mother asked this and whom his brother and himself brought this question to Jesus, now in his third epistle, he says, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. I think John had learned through by God's grace, that that's not the place for those who lead in the church to have preeminence, but to be servants. Whatever we desire, dear ones, that is not for God's glory, that is not according to the revealed will of God that we find in Scripture, and that is not out of faith in the promise of God, is a sinful desire. If we would earnestly and sincerely see sinful desires within, because it's from those sinful desires that sinful words and sinful deeds come. If we would see those sinful desires crucified in our lives, we must not, dear ones, merely deal with the outward symptoms. We must get to the heart of the issue within our hearts we must understand that that's where the real battle is, is within our desires, our affections. Where is our heart? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And if we do not recognize the sinful desires within that covet, whether it's power, whether it's possessions, whether it's money, whether it's fame, fortune, honor, prestige, whatever it is, 
if we do not recognize and deal with those desires, they will eventually manifest themselves in our lives. And if we do not deal with them, they will be our downfall. And overcoming these enemies of our soul within, we can only do so through the power of Christ's death and resurrection. There's no power in ourselves to be able to to deal with those wicked and evil desires within. We may be able to restrain ourselves from exercising outwardly certain things. Um, People break certain habits, bad habits, uh, without Jesus Christ, you know, they, they do so by way of, I would s- submit God's common mercies unto them, but not by way of special grace that comes to only believers. But, but people may, again, be able to restrain themselves from certain things outwardly. But dear ones, no one can restrain themselves from the wicked and evil desires within apart from Jesus Christ. They will overwhelm us if we do not deal with them. That's why we need Christ. That's why we need his death. For, for not only did our wicked and evil words and wicked and evil actions, not only were they put to the cross and died with Jesus, but our wicked and evil desires likewise died when Jesus died. And therefore, we have, by God's grace, the power to reckon those wicked and evil desires to be dead within us, to treat them as dead by the power of Jesus Christ and by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ to turn our desires from that which is wicked and evil and to say, I am rather going to place this desire that is righteous and holy, whenever this wicked desire arises, I'm going to turn and I'm going to focus my attention, my desire upon this which is good and right and holy and desire that. Do you desire, dear ones, Do you desire to be a servant of Jesus Christ? Do you desire to wash others' feet as Jesus did? There is no other type of servant than following in the path of Jesus. He's the servant that we are to imitate. He's our example. He washed the feet of his disciples. Are we willing to wash, as it were, whether literally or whether figuratively, are we willing to wash the feet of one another in serving out of love and care one another? I can guarantee you, dear ones, without that desire to be a servant of Christ and to wash the feet of others, there will be no word and no action to accomplish it. 
Jesus answers the request of these two disciples by first revealing their ignorance when he says in verse 22a, ye know not what ye ask. Their pride and their ignorance had led them, in fact, to ask even this question through their mother for themselves to be seated on either side of the Lord and his kingdom. Their pride and their ignorance had led them to this place. The Lord then continues by asking them, James and John, the following question in 22b, are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Here Jesus uses uh, two figures of speech, and in both cases, whether it's drinking from a cup or baptism, both of these examples, both, both of these figures of speech uh, illustrate and signify part- participation in, partaking of. Drinking of, of a cup, you're drinking of the contents within that cup, you're partaking of that, of the contents. <coughs> Um, and in this case, the contents that Jesus is asking them, can you drink of the cup? The cup of suffering. That's what was in the cup. Are you able to drink of that cup of suffering? Jesus asked them. And baptism also uh, signifies partaking, partaking uh, of that which is uh, promised, partaking of that which uh, is uh, it is given, and in this case, once again, when Jesus unites it together with drinking from a cup, are you able to drink from this cup, and are you able then to be baptized with the baptism? The baptism with which Jesus is talking about is the baptism of suffering, once again. Are you able to be baptized, not with water, but, but, but with suffering? Because that was what he was going to bring upon. He, that's what was going to come upon him, was suffering. In pride and ignorance, once again, they, they rashly respond, we are able, we are able. In verse 22. And then the Lord prophesies that both James and John will indeed have their part in suffering for him and with him. In verse 23, And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. So he does acknowledge, You are going to, both of you, are going to suffer with me. Jesus acknowledges that. They didn't understand, I don't believe, even at this point, what Jesus was saying. But uh, in, Acts, in Acts 12, one, verses 1 through 2, it says, Now about that time Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Yeah. James did partake of the cup. James did partake of the baptism of suffering which Jesus bore himself. 
Likewise, John. If again, the, the account of Tertullian is accurate, that he, as we noted, I think last Lord's Day, that, that he, uh, the story uh, goes that he was boiled in hot oil uh, by Domitian and that he incurred nothing by way of any burns or scars or any damage at all. And then he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And in Revelation 1.9, we read, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Yes, they did indeed drink of that cup and they did and were baptized with the baptism with which Jesus was baptized with. You see, they grew, indeed, they grew uh, from that point in which they responded to the point in time in which they suffered for Christ. Here were two disciples that were not ready at that particular point in their life. They were not ready to suffer for Christ or with Christ. They, like Peter, confessed that they would never, ever forsake the Lord. Everybody else would, but they wouldn't forsake the Lord. In Matthew 26, verses 30 through 35, but forsake Jesus, they all did. In Matthew 26, 56, every one of them forsook Jesus. How we see here the good intentions of these disciples and yet their, their great weaknesses. And yet Jesus works with very weak believers. He delights to sanctify and to grow in Christ very weak believers in Jesus Christ. Very rash, impudent, proud believers to shave off by way of suffering those rough edges and to conform them to the image of Jesus Christ to become a servant of Jesus Christ. Do you see your weaknesses when you think of suffering for Christ? Do you see and understand your pride, your fear, your covetousness and wanting to hold on and not lose what you have when it comes to suffering for Christ? Is what you will have to lose of this world more important to you than following Jesus and wearing the crown of thorns? For dear ones, if we're not willing to wear the crown of thorns, we will not wear the crown of life. If we do not suffer for Christ, we will not reign with Christ according to 2 Timothy 2.12. We see here that the other disciples of Christ were indignant and displeased with James and John in verse 24, and when they, 
the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. Which is kind of ironic because they had on previous occasion, at least once, <coughs> argued among themselves who would be the greatest, who would be the greatest among them. I submit to you that, that they were indignant probably not so much because of what James and John had asked, but more so because they too coveted the same positions of honor and dignity whereby that they might be served. This, I believe, is made clear in what Jesus says in the final main point where he elaborates on what true leadership in Christ's kingdom is. And he spoke to all of the disciples concerning this, not just to James and John, but to all of them. And so our third main point, the true greatness or true greatness lies not in ruling, but in serving. In verses 25 through 28. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them, but it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister, and whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. As you tie together verse 24 with verse 25, verse 24 talks about, it says, When the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. Then verse 25 begins, But Jesus called them unto him, that is, the ten, along with the two. The two were already standing there, James and John, but he called the ten. So this Jesus gives to all of his disciples, uh, this message here. Because they all needed to hear it, as we all need to hear it. Every one of us needs to hear it. The message of service, being servants of Jesus Christ. These ten disciples appear to be condemning James and John for what was actually true in their own hearts. How often that is the case, that what we condemn in others is true of ourselves. We just want to make ourselves look a little better. And so we jump over others, jump on others by point, pointing out their sins so that we don't look, feel so bad or look so bad. And so it appears that this may have been the case with the ten as well. Such hypocrisy, however, breeds self-righteousness. It breeds harshness in our spirits and in our words. The Lord tells us how to avoid such hypocrisy in Matthew 7, where he says, don't try to take out 
the mote, the speck out of your brother's eye before you take the beam out of your own eye. Start with yourself. Be transparent before God as to your own sins. Then you will not judge so harshly others. You will try to help others with their sins, not jump all over others because of their sins. You'll try to work with them. When we understand our own sinful weaknesses and dispositions and desires within us. That's the way we are. We're inconsistent. And as many times as the Lord Jesus tells us to watch out for hypocrisy and inconsistency like that, we continue, God, have mercy upon us. God, help us. Here, Jesus contrasts the way in which the Gentile magistrates rule with the way in which church officers ought to rule, the apostles being church officers. There ought to be, dear ones, a conspicuous difference between the way the world and its leaders rule and the way in which those who are servants of Jesus Christ rule. There is a legitimate authority that comes from Christ to his church officers. There's a legitimate authority that Christ gives to, to husbands in the, in the family. There's a legitimate authority that God gives to parents in the family. There's a legitimate authority that God gives to, to magistrates who are the ministers of God to us for good. So there's no question of legitimate authority. The question is how to use that authority that God has given. And the Lord Jesus shows us by example, we use that authority as servants. Not as those who destroy and crush, but as those who seek to help, to assist, to come alongside to bear up the weak. Even those who have stumbled and stumbled many times to bear them up. Whereas the Gentile magistrates covet power and honor over others that they might be served Church officers must covet to be servants of Jesus Christ and to lay down their lives for Christ and for his sheep. Whereas Gentile magistrates covet to swear unlawful oaths, to exercise dominion over people and to bind their consciences by way of swearing unlawful oaths, Church officers must covet to lead under Christ in those specified areas given to them and not to encroach upon areas that are indifferent and to place people's consciences under matters that are indifferent but only in those matters that Jesus Christ, the King of the Church, has specifically prescribed. 
God alone is Lord of the conscience. So says rightly, correctly, our Westminster Confession of Faith. The great example given for us to follow from the text before us is Jesus himself. He who is the eternal Son of God did not cling to his own divine rights so as to prevent him from serving us. We who in the form of those who persecuted Christ, we would have in our unsaved state joined with those soldiers and spat upon Christ. We would have joined with those soldiers and placed in a crown of thorns and beating it into his skull. We would have joined with the soldiers and scourged his back to a bloody mess and placed him upon that cross because that's the nature. That's the nature of our sin and depravity. That's the nature of our corruption. But for the Lord Jesus rescuing and saving us. But he came from heaven, exalted, willingly to become a servant, to lay down his life for you and for me, who are his redeemed ones. How can we, dear ones, in light of that example, how can we cling to any rights we believe belong to us by refusing to serve Christ or by refusing to humble ourselves to serve one another in light of what Christ has done as the suffering servant? As I said, Jesus washed the feet of his disciples as an example for us. So we, as leaders, church officers, are called to be willing to wash the feet of our people. And we are called all together to wash the feet of one another, to follow Jesus in serving one another. Dear ones, as I close, service, serving one another, is contagious. It's contagious. Those who selflessly and sacrificially serve others will find that when they are in need, there will be no lack of persons to come to their aid to serve them. As we read in the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are those who serve, for they shall be served in their time of need. Having the heart of a servant will also promote the peace, the purity, and the unity of Christ's church. How can we who are a church full of servants be at one another's throats, talking behind one another's backs, 
If we are truly servants, we will be seeking to build one another up. And that's going to promote the peace, the purity, and unity of Christ's church. And so I ask, are you waiting to be served? Or are you, like Jesus Christ, in your homes, perhaps where no, none of us can see your service, but are you serving in your homes? Are husbands serving wives and wives serving husbands? Are parents serving children and children serving parents? And I'm not simply talking or only talking about the material needs. Because we need more than simply food upon the table and a roof over our necks, though the, over our heads, though that's, again, a great blessing. But are we serving by way of being willing to even at times relinquish certain things that we want to do and believe would be good to do, and, but willing to serve others, one another, if it's not sinful to do, if we're not sinning in doing so? Apostle Paul, in talking about rights in 1 Corinthians 9, <clears throat> talks about what he was willing to give up. He talks about that he had the right to marry, but he gave up that right, like the rest of the, the apostles had wives, but he gave that up in order to serve Jesus Christ. Again, we can give up things that are legitimately good in order to serve others. This is what this is the kind of sacrifice that we must make. It was good for Jesus, the Son of God, to be in heaven, but he was willing to give it up to serve, to lay down his life for us, his people. Let our prayer therefore be, dear ones, Every day, our prayer, make me a servant like Jesus Christ. Make me a servant like Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. We come to thee, our Lord Jesus. We praise thee for having set before us an example and laying down thy life for us. Laying aside, Lord, thy glory that we might be brought into that glory. We ask our Lord that that thou would forgive us wherein we have been only concerned about serving ourselves, where serving thee and serving one another was, was not really in our mind at all. Humble us, our God. Let us not be, Lord, like the 
the disciples that we have read about today. Thank thee, Lord, that thou did grow them to where they were willing to be servants. But Father, we do not want to be in that childish, selfish stage for all of our lives. We want to grow to be servants of Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, work that within us. Give to us, Lord, uh, even suffering to teach us, to train us to be servants. Lord, we call upon thee, pray that thou would promote through that service the peace, the purity, and unity of Christ's church, and that thou would give, Lord, to us who are church officers that grace to be servants of Christ and servants to the, to the flock of Jesus Christ. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.